Ezekiel's a, an interesting book. Uh, his, his name means strengthened of the Lord. Uh, and um, certainly Ezekiel was a man who had God's power resting upon him. Uh, Ezekiel uh, went through the first captivity of Babylon that, that took place when Daniel was hauled off and he was left behind in Jerusalem after the first uh, time that Nebuchadnezzar took some of the folks away in captivity in 605 B.C. And it was not until the second captivity, about eight years later, that Ezekiel was then taken to Babylon. And he uh, focuses pretty much all of his ministry uh, for about 40 years or so dealing with the folks that were born in Babylon. They did not even remember being in Jerusalem or young kids that were carried away uh, from Jerusalem. And uh, the purpose of, of Ezekiel uh, and, and, his, and uh, the things that God gives him in this book is he's preaching to those that uh, don't remember Jerusalem. They don't remember God's promises. And so they realize they're in captivity. They realize that they're under God's judgment. And so the book of Ezekiel is broken into four sections. We find in the, the first three chapters God's call on Ezekiel. We spent some time dealing with uh, the, the uh, characteristics of when God would oftentimes call people uh, in the Old Testament. He would give them uh, the instructions of what He wanted them to do, and then He would enable them. Oftentimes He would choose people that uh, were had disabilities or were inferior, were not in positions of uh, influence, and He enables them and causes them to be able to do the work. And then He lays on them the responsibility, and He holds them accountable to bringing that message to the people. And Ezekiel, in all of his years, is faithful to the message of God. Even in persecution, even in times where it was not popular for him to say the things that he did, Ezekiel was very strong in his, in his preaching and his teaching. Perhaps one of the most famous portions of the book is the, uh, is the portion of Scripture in Ezekiel that deals with the Valley of Dry Bones. And a lot of people uh, are familiar with that passage. And that passage specifically is a promise or uh, an indication to Israel that even though they are going through uh, some of the judgment of God now, there's going to come a time where God is going to bring judgment on the Gentiles and He's going to restore Israel back to her glory. And uh, again, Ezekiel's ministry is to encourage the hearts of, of folks that were from Judah, from Israel, Jews, in Babylon captivity that uh, did not understand these things. They didn't know how long the captivity was going to last at that point. Many of them did not. Uh, Ezekiel understood from the writings of Jeremiah, and so did Daniel. Ezekiel and Daniel were about the same age. Um, they were both about 20 years younger than Jeremiah, but they all served around the same time. Daniel in the first captivity, uh, was in Babylon and served uh, under uh, uh, four different kings. And then uh, you have Ezekiel that came on the scene. And uh, the second captivity went to Babylon and uh, was ministering primarily to the younger uh, Jews in Babylon. And Jeremiah was at home during all of this. He lived about two miles outside of Jerusalem and was there to minister to the folks back in Jerusalem in that area. <clears throat> the four sections of the book that we find in chapters 1 through 3, the call of Ezekiel. In chapters 4 through 24, we find God expressing what His judgment of Judah is all about, why He's doing it, what He's going to be doing, when He's going to be doing it. And um, there are several things that 
uh, were the result of his uh, judgment that we find in chapters 4 through 24. Uh, one of them is we find that, the, that uh, Judah <coughs> was committing <coughs> abominations in the temple. And uh, when we say that, when they were defiling the practices, the holy practices that God had given the nation of Israel in order to worship in the temple, they were defiling those things. And they were doing idolatrous worship and, and bringing in uh, men that were not worthy uh, as priests and, and uh, those that would do the service of the temple, bringing in wicked men, and they were defiling the temple of God. And if you'll remember, uh, through from the time of the wilderness wanderings when the tabernacle was originally built, and then later on when Solomon builds the temple, <clears throat> we find that uh, God's glory came and rested inside the Holy of Holies. And uh, when we call it a tabernacle, and later on we call it a temple, it, it literally was considered to be the house of God because His, his actual presence, His Shekinah glory, was in that place. He was there in the midst of His people. And um, so one of the things that took place during this time of judgment in chapters 4 through 24 is the glory of the Lord departs the temple. And that, that, that may or may not sound like much to us as Gentiles, but to the Jews that was a big thing. Um, it was, it, was, it was huge that they lost the glory of God out of the temple. It's not until uh, Haggai comes on the scene years later and rebuilds the temple that God says, I'll fill that temple again with my glory. And he says later on, the second temple will be greater than the first. Uh, not because of how ornate it was, because it would never compare to Solomon's temple, but because of the glory that God was filling that temple with. And so this is kind of how all this ties together time-wise and chronologically. All of these folks are contemporary. They're all dealing with the same issue in the same time period, the same uh, issues of uh, captivity. Um, they, there was a problem with Judah where <clears throat> uh, God sent some judgment in that they, uh, many of the wicked folks were slain uh, during this time of judgment. Uh, we find that the priests and the princes both, those that were in um, governmental authority, those that were in uh, spiritual authority, are condemned, and they are taken out of positions of leadership. Um, prophets that were in the, uh, during that time, many of them were counterfeit prophets and were telling things that weren't so. Uh, we found that as we studied the book of Jeremiah, uh, that there was one, uh, Hananiah, that was uh, giving a very, very difficult time to Jeremiah and even tried to have Jeremiah killed uh, during his, this time. And so there's a lot of counterfeit prophets during this time. And then a lot of the elders uh, of Israel, the men that were the leaders of Israel, uh, practiced open idolatry. And if you can imagine the, the nation of Israel being very influential, they, they were, they, there was a culture of following the leadership of the elders and men that would sit at the gate, men of influence, men that um, had a sway over the opinions of people. These men that were in their midst uh, during this time period from chapter 4 through chapter 24 were very, very idolatrous. And we talked a little bit about this in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. Again, here we find it in Ezekiel that oftentimes when God's judgment comes, it's the result of two things that happen, and usually they happen in this order. First is there is an intermarrying and an immorality uh, that takes place, fornication that takes place with other nations. Uh, they begin to intermarry. They begin to uh, uh, have adultery and fornication happening. 
And it's not long after that that these idol, uh, the idols that these other countries, these other nations have that are surrounding them, they begin to come in. And uh, by the way, let me just pull a modern-day principle or example of this in the day that we live. How many times have we seen young people, one saved and one unsaved, that dated and the, a saved person said, but I can be an influence on them. And yet most of the time, I'm not saying every time, because there are a few I can point to and say, yes, that did happen. But rarely does that happen. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, and the reason is because of our sinful nature, it has that propensity to go towards the things of the flesh. And it's not long after a boy or a girl falls in love with an unsaved one that they begin to drift in their faith. Uh, they typically do not draw that person to Christ. Normally, um, it's the other way around. And so that's what takes place oftentimes in the nation of Israel when God's judgment comes. They begin to uh, intermix with other countries. And Satan is, is uh, he's very shrewd about this. He constantly is tempting and pushing Israel to do these things. So Ezekiel speaks out against these things in chapter 4 through chapter 24. The third, third section of the book, God deals with uh, His coming judgment of the Gentiles. He wanted those in Babylon to know that those that were oppressing them now, those that were the cause of them coming into idolatry, those pagan nations around them that had uh, infiltrated Israel and Judah specifically and uh, had brought these idols in, that those nations were going to be judged for what they did. And I'm glad God keeps good records. Um, there are times that people do us wrong, and God says, I'll take care of that. Uh, that's not up to us. And uh, lest these people become frustrated, uh, he deals in chapters 25 through 32 with uh, coming judgment on these Gentile nations. There are at least six of them that are mentioned specifically. We're going to take a few minutes to look at this, and this is kind of where we left off last week. Uh, there are six of them specifically that are mentioned. We're going to look at one of them specifically, and that is the, the uh, city of Tyrus. But uh, there is Ammon. Uh, the nation of Ammon is one of those uh, Gentile nations that will be judged by God uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the country of Moab, uh, the folks of Moab, the folks of Edom, the folks of Philistia, and then uh, the uh, folks of Tyrus, and the folks of Sidon. And um, take your Bibles and let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. And I want to take just a few moments. We dealt with this a little bit just two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I'm sorry, on a Wednesday night, in the book of Revelation. And there are a lot of very close parallels in some of the prophecies that Ezekiel gives and some of the prophecies that we find in Revelation. But I want us to look in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. And let's look down to verse number 11. Ezekiel chapter 28. And uh, there's, a, there's a passage here that's given that allows us to have some insight. Now, we will not have full knowledge of this, I don't think, until we get to heaven. But um, occasionally, uh, years ago, I remember when I was a kid, uh, when there was a new store coming into town, they would uh, put coming soon and they put the store name on it. And then they'd be in there doing the work and they would put paper uh, over the window so you couldn't see what was going on. And as a kid, I remember going down to Searstown. That's what we did on Friday nights. We walked the, the plaza there with all the storefronts. 
And I remember putting my, my face to the window and trying to peek in there. And I could see some things, especially if it was a toy store. Man, I wanted to, I really wanted to know that. And uh, I could remember seeing some things, but it was not the same. I could see a little, and I could get, my, my, my imagination would turn, but I couldn't see it fully. There are times in Scripture where God gives us a glimpse. He doesn't express fully all of the truth of it. But He does give us some insight uh, into some things. And this is one of those passages. Let's look in verse number 11, if you will. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. <clears throat> now I want you to notice some of the wording here, in verse, starting in verse number 13. He's speaking to the king of Tyrus, a physical man. And this message is for him. But he makes this statement in verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, it's been several thousand years, and the flood has taken place, and there is no way that this man survived through all of that from the time of Eden. So what does that mean? Well, let's see if there are any other clues that are given to us throughout these verses. Every precious stone was thy covering. In other words, he was clothed, if you will, with precious stones. Sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, and sapphire, and the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared for thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds like Lucifer, doesn't it? <coughs> Isn't it interesting that God tells Ezekiel to go or send the message, at least, to the king of Tyre, the physical person, and to express in first person as if he is Lucifer? There are a couple of other passages in Scripture. Daniel chapter number 9 is another passage that deals with something very similar to this. When it talks about the prince of Persia and how Michael uh, had to come and help the messenger that had been uh, trying to get to Daniel for 21 days, and he said, the prince of Persia withstood me one in 20 days, and uh, Michael had to come and help me with him, and that Michael remained to wrestle with the prince of Persia. We find in the book of Revelation, chapter number 3, that Pergamos was the seat of Satan. And I believe very clearly in Scripture we find that there are times where Satan literally possesses an individual and accomplishes a work in this world. I believe it's going to happen again when the time of the Antichrist comes. He will be embodied by Satan himself. He will be empowered by him. He'll be indwelt with him, I believe. But I believe throughout history there have been a few times where God has, uh, or Satan has uh, taken his abode and has uh, kind of made that his worldly, if you will, his worldly headquarters. Understand that Satan is not like God. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. A lot of people say, well, the devil made me do it. I really doubt that. <coughs> there, were some, uh, there were some men during Paul's day 
that went around and they were trying to, and they were doing it. The reason I believe they were failing at it was because I believe they were doing it so that people would look at them and think of them more than they were. But there were some men that were going around trying to do what the apostles were doing, and that was to cast out demons. And uh, they went to uh, this one man that was possessed of a devil, <coughs> and they told this devil to leave the man, and they were trying to cast him out. And the demon responded back through, or the, the devil responded back through uh, this, uh, this man that was possessed and said, Peter we know, and Paul we know. And, but in essence, they were saying, who are you? We don't know who you are. What authority do you have over us? And we don't have those kinds of uh, powers today. Those, I believe, were apostolic gifts that are uh, long since gone. Uh, but we certainly can pray for folks that are possessed. I, I said this before, uh, that we look through Scripture, and every time you find uh, folks that are possessed of a devil you find them in a violent and a chaotic state, do you not? Uh, you find them cutting themselves, throwing themselves into fire, uh, terrorizing the, the population of the city they're near, uh, not in their right minds, not usually unclothed. By the way, that ought to tell us a lot about the nature of people not wanting to cover themselves up in the day we live. And we find that there's a violence uh, look at the time of the prophets of Baal and, and, uh, and Elijah on Mount Carmel. And they jumped on the altar and they cut themselves. And the Bible said the blood was running off of them. And uh, the, the violence. And you say, Pastor, why is that so important? Because when we look at events of today, we look in the news and we see things going on in our world today, we, we ought not be shocked with the... Uh, the, the fact that, boy, I can't believe people would do this, such a thing. Who would go in and, and, and do a mass shooting? You ever notice that, that those seem to go through cycles? And just about the time of an election uh, starting to ramp up again, we start seeing more and more of those things start to come into, into play. And if you're not careful, you'll think of it as a conspiracy theorist that this is all being planned by people. I do think it's being planned. I don't know that it's by people. I believe it is by a power, though that stirs and works in the hearts of unsaved men and men that are at this point willing to deny uh, that uh, God has any authority over them. It's amazing to me how many people, there are quite a few that deny that God exists, but there's a lot of people who will admit that God exists. They just say He doesn't have any right over me. And defiant, uh, rebellious, uh, high-handed, stiff-necked. And these are the type of folks that we see I mean, things don't go their way, and they begin to burn cities and loot, loot stores and uh, violence going on. Uh, you say, boy, how does all this stuff happen? Is it because of the political condition? No, not at all. It's because of the spiritual condition of our country. And I've said so many times before, the answer to the problems of the United States of America are not going to be solved in Washington, D.C. They never were solved there, and they never will be solved there. They will be solved in the pulpits and the pews of our churches. And there needs to be a revival of God's might and God's power. We come to church, it ought not to be because it's our schedule to do so. It's Sunday morning, it's, it's what we're supposed to do. 
there, there ought to be a longing for God's power to work in us every time we come to church. There ought to be a, a, a seeking and a praying and a, and, a, and a pleading with God. Lord, stir me today. Do a work in my heart. Uh, help us as we leave this place to be motivated to do something in this world to help draw them to You. And, and this, this ought to be... Uh, we're, we're in a point where churches are so uh, anemic. We go through our programs. We're so well planned and organized. And there is such a lack of God's power existing. You say, this is important because Satan is very real. And he is at work today. And I'll be honest with you. He is not taking a vacation. He is not being apathetic about things. He knows his time is short. And if anything, he has stepped up his work. He's, he's he redoubled his efforts. There's not a doubt in my mind that Satan is diligent. There's not a doubt in my mind that he is fervent in what he does. Problem is, we as God's people have gotten and lulled into a, a sense of complacency. We don't, we're not, we don't live with the awareness that Satan is very real and very active in the world that we're living in. We think that by going once a year or once every two years and voting and putting our vote in, and by the way, you ought to vote. If you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. But we think that by going and putting our vote in every two years that we've we've done our part to help bring our, our country back to a moral center. We haven't even scratched the surface of bringing our country back to a moral center. There need to be some of God's people that first and foremost look into their own lives and say, I'm going to follow the truth and the principles of God's Word. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to live morally according to God's law. And once I do that, then I'm going to do everything I can to encourage others to do it too. I'm going to reach them with the gospel. The answer for terrorism, the answer for uh, Islam, the answer for uh, these cults, the, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Mormons, any other denominations out there that believe in a work salvation, the answer for all of that is to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. The answer to the violence in our country, the answer to the political decisions that are made that where they're, they're legalizing immorality and they're, they're, they're uh, outlawing morality. The answer to that is to reach the hearts of our politicians. We need to have the power of God resting upon us again. Oh, that we would give ourselves to seeking for that, to pleading for it and asking God for it, to living in such a way that we do not quench the Holy Spirit, that we do not grieve Him, that we're not the cause of Him not working in the world that we live in today. And there needs to be a revival of this. And I know we say, we look around the room, we say, well, there's, what, 15, 20 people here in Sunday school at Keith Heights Baptist Church in a, in a world of 140 billion or million people uh, here in the United States, I think it is now, or three, no, 300 and, was it 347 million, I think they say now, in the United States. There's only 20 of us. What difference can we make? None. But the power of God can make a huge difference if we would just let Him use us, if we would seek for that, if we would let Him use and, and, and begin where you're at. Don't, don't throw your hands up and say, the task is too great. Somebody, somebody said years ago, the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And oftentimes, I think we look at God's, uh, God's commission to us to go into all the world 
as something too great. And so we don't even try. I heard a story years ago, and I don't know if it's a made it probably is a made-up story, but it was an illustration I'd heard a fellow say years ago that a young girl was walking along the seashore, and there were, there were literally thousands of starfish that had washed up on the sand. And one by one, she was going and picking them up and carrying them to the water and placing them back in the water. And a man walking along saw her doing that, and he started uh, asking her, said, what are you doing? She said, I'm putting these starfish back in the water. And he said, well, you can't expect to make a difference in the lives of all these starfish, can you? And she very quietly leaned over and picked another one up and went to the water and put it in the water. And she said, maybe not, but I made a difference for that one. And so many times I think we look at the task as being too great. And because of that, we get frustrated or we throw our hands up in despair. And every time we do that, we are expressing our lack of faith in Him. We're saying, Lord, I don't think it can be done. And that's true if we're looking into doing it ourselves. But God can do wonders. God can do things. He can make a way where there isn't a way. God can take a group of a million plus people out into the middle of a, of a wilderness for 40 years. And He can feed them from the wilderness. And He can give them water from the wilderness. He can keep them clothed. And He can keep them sheltered. He can keep them protected from the enemies. And it isn't even a strain for Him to do so. Why is it then that we do not think this task could be done? This work of reaching this world. Why is it we do not feel that when we go out and share the gospel that God can use us to bring someone to Him? Why is it when we do share the gospel, more times than not, we think they probably won't get saved? Where is our lack of where is our faith? Our lack of it is very apparent. It's very visible. God is expressing to these folks. He said, I'm going to judge the Gentiles. He gives them hope. And then in chapters 33, in the last section of the book, in chapters 33 to 48, He deals with the restoration of Israel. He gives them hope. I am so glad that God is a long-suffering God. And while there are times He chastens and are times that He judges, I'm so thankful that He is still willing and ready to take us back every time. He is faithful, the Bible says, and just to forgive us of our sins. You say, how often will He forgive us? I don't think He would expect anything less of Himself than He did of His disciples. He told Peter 70 times 7. And He wasn't trying to give Peter a number and say 490 times, and on the 491st time you don't forgive him. He was using that as an expression to say, Peter, you always forgive them if they're willing to come back and ask forgiveness. You always give that forgiveness. Why? Because Christ does. He's long-suffering. <coughs> I want us to look at the Christ of Ezekiel and we'll be done. Uh, actually, we'll look at uh, two more things. The Christ of, uh, of Ezekiel and then the keys to Ezekiel. Um, in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 17, let's look there very quickly. 
Ezekiel chapter number 17. Let's look in verse number 22. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 17, verse number 22. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it, and I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it upon the high mountain in intimate. And in the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell, uh, dwell all the fowl of every wing, in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and, made the, uh, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Uh, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, Christ is referred to uh, as a twig or a branch, if you will. Uh, I'm not going to turn to all of these references for sake of time, but I'll give them to you and then I'll make them available in the notes if you'd like to have a copy of the notes. In Isaiah chapter number 11, verse number 1, he speaks of it, uh, Christ being the branch. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, in verse number 5, he speaks of it. In Jeremiah chapter 33, in verse number 15, he speaks of it again. In Zechariah chapter 3, in verse number 8, he speaks of it again, and also in Zechariah chapter number 6 and verse number 12. And you'll find that these references in the Old Testament to Christ being the branch uh, uh, is an indication, uh, again, picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe we find another instance of that here in Ezekiel chapter number 17. Uh, the next thing we find as a picture of <coughs> the Lord Jesus Christ is found in chapter 21. So turn over there with me. Ezekiel chapter 21. And let's look in verse number 26. Ezekiel 21 and verse number 26. Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. The crown rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ, who is the King. He is the one that is the King of Israel. And uh, he says, I'm going to take it away, and I'm going to not give it to anyone until he whose right it is comes. He says, when he comes, I'll give it to him. And there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And oh, what a joy it's going to be. We get to rule and reign with him. And what a joy that's going to be pictured again here as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter number 34 and verse number 11. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse number 11. <clears throat> For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is uh, among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Uh, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and all, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold in a fat pasture, shall they, be, uh, shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel." I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. 
I will seek that which uh, was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I judge between the cattle and the and cattle between the rams and the he goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but ye uh, must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures. And to have drunk the deep waters, but ye must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because you have thrust uh, with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them. Well, what a phrase. He shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. And I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and uh, the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season and there shall be showers of blessing. The tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. He is pictured here as the great shepherd of his people. We read in chapter 34 of the promise to Israel that He will restore them. There will come a time where they will no longer need to fear their enemies. And He will provide for them and care for them. What a wonderful picture uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work with uh, His own people, His own nation. Key verses, I guess, would be found here in chapter 36, verses 24 and 26. Uh, through 26, I'm sorry. And also in verse chapter 36, verses 33 to 35. Again, I'll have those in the notes. And then I, I believe the key chapter in this is going to be uh, chapter 37. Chapter 37 is the chapter that deals with the Valley of Dry Bones. And if you've never read that before, uh, it's an interesting read. But you need to keep in mind what it's picturing, and that is the Lord restoring life once again back to the nation of Israel. And there is coming that day. There's been about a 2,000-year pause where God has not worked through His nation of Israel specifically. He still blesses them. They still are His people. He's not uh, caused them to not be His people. But He's not using them to accomplish His work right now. But there will come a day where they will have full restoration back to Christ. And I don't know about you, but I, I love the Jewish people. I know they're His. 
And uh, I'm looking forward to that day where they are reunited with Him once again and are His chosen people that uh, He is working with and through in uh, the time that He has with them. Well, I hope that that's been a help to us as we've studied the book of Ezekiel. It's a, it's a big book, a very complex book, got a lot in it, and uh, so much rich truth. Uh, we say in every, almost every book uh, that there are so many principles, so many things we can find in the Old Testament, rich, that help us today, that are relevant to today. And we need to look for those things as we study it, as we read through, uh, knowing a little bit of background and some of the history behind it, some of the setting that... that it's taking place and may help us to understand a little better uh, some of the principles that God is trying to teach. And I hope that will be helpful to you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer here in just a moment. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We do pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, may you send revival to our hearts and to our country. May there be a desire for holy living. May we be willing to pay the price for revival. May there be a... a, a uh, submitting of ourself and uh, that we would not